be turning to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we're going to read from verse 43. No, I did, I did this at 9.30 as well. We're going to read from verse 41 to verse 65. A couple of weeks ago, Dan kind of led us into the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, I guess today we'll kind of make our way out of the Garden of Gethsemane. But we, we begin there in the garden. So we'll pick up from where we left off there. Mark chapter 14, verse 41. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, And you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. And they took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. As I say last time we were in the book of Mark, Dan was leading us wonderfully through uh, Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
praying, is there another way? Is there any other way? If there's any other way, then take this cup from me. But coming to that conclusion, yet not my will, but yours be done. And we move on from there. We see what Jesus says immediately as we started reading. Enough. The hour has come. The hour has come. We're coming to the climax. We're approaching the cross. And through this passage, we could see lots of different characters that we could focus in on. We see Judas, who's come to do, to play his part. He's come to betray Jesus. And as Jesus has already said earlier in the chapter, in verse 21, the Son of Man will go just as it's written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Or we could look in on, on Peter. We don't see him named here, but John tells us, yeah, it's Peter who got his sword out. It's Peter who jumped in, as Peter so often did, and decides he's going to have a go, but he's going to get it wrong again, lashing out with his sword. We could look at the chief priests who are hiding in the darkness, sending this mob with Judas to go and get Jesus in a quiet place out in the middle of the night. Or in fact, we could look at this kind of mysterious reference to this young man that we just see in Mark's Gospel who kind of seems to get a little bit too close and might, is almost going to get captured, but he manages to escape, albeit that his clothes don't manage to escape. But as Dan drew our attention last time to Philippians 3 verse 10, I want to know Christ. I want to see what do we see of him here in this dark place. In this dark place. Because picture it, we see him here in the midst of darkness and turmoil. We've had, he's been in the garden praying, agonizing, agonizing over this is what's before me. This is what's coming. I know this is where I'm going. The cup before me. If there's any other way, take it away. But now he knows this is the way I'm going. He's resolved to it. But we're here in the Garden of Gethsemane. They, they'd had their, the meal, the Last Supper, as we now know it as. They've been celebrating the Passover in the evening time. Now they've gone out. Jesus has been praying for some time. Now we're in the dark of the night. And we see this desperate scene. Jesus with his disciples, he wakes them up. Then you can see this crowd coming. We can only imagine perhaps they came with torches and they've got their swords and their clubs. There's this mob coming with Judas leading them on. We've got this whole kind of sense of secrecy as Judas has led this mob out of the city to where Jesus is, into a, a quiet place where they're going to arrest him. But Judas comes leading this mob. He's kind of expecting trouble. Seize him and lead him away under guards. We've got to keep him safe and locked up. There could be trouble. There's this scene of panic and chaos as Peter suddenly lunges forward and he cuts off the guard's ear. And all the way through, there's this sense of fear as the disciples run. 
as Jesus is left completely alone with his captors. In a sense, the mention of this, this unnamed man who manages to get away, despite having to leave his clothes behind, just adds to that sense, look, there's chaos here, there's panic, it's terrifying as they all run away. And Jesus is led away, arrested to the chief priests, to all the teachers of the law, as they come together in the middle of the night and have this kind of sham trial. As they bring false witness after false witness, as they bring all sorts of testimony, they're trying to stick on him and they can't get anything to stick. Before eventually Jesus is condemned and they mock him. Prophesy! And they beat him and spit on him. Throughout this passage, we can see Jesus, throughout this terrible, dark scene, we can see Jesus painted by others in the story, or even by just the circumstances that we see. We can think of different things that could describe Jesus here. We look at them kind of asking questions of them. Jesus appears to be seen as some kind of freedom fighter. Later on in the passage, he's labelled as a blasphemer. And all the way through, it could look to us that Jesus is some kind of helpless victim. We're going to look at all three of these kind of questions. Is this what's right? Is this what's true of Jesus here in turn? So firstly, a freedom fighter. What, What am I meaning? Well, you kind of get the sense that the chief priest, Judas himself, others, they're kind of expecting a particular thing from Jesus. Is he this character who's leading an uprising, some kind of rebellion? There was a sense that the Jews were expecting that the Messiah would come. If, if Jesus is the Messiah, perhaps he's going to be this military leader who's going to set us free from the Romans. The leaders seem convinced that he's, he's some kind of troublemaker. They've seen the temple overturned. They've, seen, they've heard him speaking out against them. And then what do they send? A mob with swords and clubs. Send out to one man with his few followers in a garden. They're sending an army. Expecting trouble. As we said, Judas, Judas is clear. Well, seize him and lead him away under guard. You need to keep him locked up. Even the disciples, we see Peter's example. He's lashing out. He's like, we've got to fight for, for this. We've got to keep Jesus free. We've got to do something here. But what does Jesus say? Verse 48. Am I leading a rebellion? Said Jesus that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you didn't arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. You see, they might be, whatever their expectation, they might be expecting some kind of military campaign to be starting, some kind of physical uprising to happen. We've got to keep Jesus here as the leader of our, our army. Perhaps it's going through Peter's mind. I've got to stop him being arrested. But Jesus hasn't come to fight for an earthly kingdom. 
He hadn't come to restore the kingdom to Israel in the way they expected. Perhaps the disciples had been envisioning it. We see they're still thinking somewhere in these terms in Acts 1 verse 6. Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he's not come in the way perhaps the leaders have expected in terms of stirring up trouble. Because whatever the expectation, Jesus isn't leading a rabble to liberate a city. He's not stirring up an army to come and march on Jerusalem or Rome or somewhere to kind of to deal with the enemy that they see amongst them. Not leading a rebellion with swords and clubs. And neither, in fact, is he fighting for his own life. You see, in some of the other accounts, he's, he's like, no, Peter, put your sword away. This is the way it must be. In fact, at this very moment of his arrest, as, as Peter lunges forward and strikes out at the guard, Luke tells us actually what's on Jesus' mind. I'm going to heal him. I care for you. It's not well done, Peter. There's a bit of an ambush. We can get a bit of a distraction. We can get out of here. No, I care for you. My thought isn't for my own self-preservation, but I'm, my heart is for you. You see, this is the Jesus that Philippians 2 describes. That wonderful, those wonderful few verses. Talk of Jesus, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus wasn't fighting for his freedom, his skin, his life. And as the story goes on, he's not attempting to justify himself before the the high priest. No, these are all false accusations. What are you talking about? I never said that. He's not coming to fight for himself in that way. And yet it's so tempting in circumstances that we find ourselves in to want to justify ourselves. To want to, as opposition comes, as people bring whatever it might be against us. So no, 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 that's not true. But Jesus, he's not fighting for his own life, or his, in that sense, for his own, uh, his own reputation in the moment. But oh yes, he fights. He has a battle that he is fighting. He has a victory that he is going to win. We're reminded of it at the very start of the passage. Those words I've already mentioned. The hour has come. Jesus knows it's coming to the time when he is going to win a victory. He has got an enemy to defeat. But not as perhaps they expected with a rabble or a mob or an army marching on a city. Fighting against the enemy he can see, the, the, the mob in front of him or the Romans who are occupying or whoever it might be. 
but fighting, in that sense, the unseen enemy, the greater enemy, as Hebrews 2 tells us what Jesus came to do. Hebrews 2 and verse 14. You see, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who, by, who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You see, Hebrews describes the battle Jesus was fighting, the freedom that he was fighting for. You see, the battle he's about to undertake is the cup that we've seen him agonizing over, the cup he is about to drink, the, the death he is about to die. So that rather than defeating an army sent by the chief priests or defeating the Roman Empire, he's going to defeat the power of death and sin. So firstly, we see a freedom fighter. Well, yes, but not in any way as they thought. Because he is the one who has set us free. If we come to him, he set us free because he triumphed over sin and death. Because he opened the way to relationship with the Father. He brings us forgiveness. I was reminded, while thinking about this, of a song that Stuart Townend wrote and some of the words from there, which kind of describe this, starting in this scene. Through the kisses of a friend's betrayal, he was lifted on a cruel cross. He was punished for a world's transgressions. He was suffering to save the lost. And then this, he fights for breath. He fights for me. Loosing sinners from the claims of hell and with a shout, our souls are free. Death defeated by Emmanuel. And we see a glimpse here as they're leaving the garden of the saviour who fought for us. Not with a sword, but by dying and drinking that cup. So firstly, yes, he's a freedom fighter, but not like they thought. But secondly, we see as the trial progresses, what they want to label him as is a blasphemer. What we mean by that is... A blasphemer is one who uses God's name in the wrong way or one who claims to be God. A man who claims to be God or on a level with God. To have that status as being, to, to try and take the status that only God deserves. And we see the trial. We see the leaders who are convinced of the need of getting rid of Jesus. They're trying to make any kind of story stick. In verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. You see, they're looking for any way to get something that they can use against Jesus. But as we see, they're all contradicting one another. Even they come with this, 
we can kind of probably remember some of Jesus' words from what they bring about this story about the temple, and yet they still can't get it right. They still can't, they still can't remember even exactly what he said. And yet their, story, their stories just don't agree. They can't find anything to stick on him. And then we see the chief priests trying to goad him into answering. Come on, are you not going to answer these claims against you? As we've already said, Jesus isn't looking to justify himself or to, to somehow kind of, no, 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 you're right. These aren't, these aren't true claims. He says nothing. He's not answering to these false charges until the high priest asks him this. Verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus then responds. Remember, as he'd already said, the hour has come. This is the time. He says, I am. I am. And as he then beautifully weaves together the prophecies of Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 that have spoken of, look, the Son of Man who's going to be seated at the right hand of God and also will be coming on the clouds of heaven. We see that the high priest realizes we've got what we need. We've got what we need. Aha. He tears his clothes. There's indignance here. We need no more witnesses. We have all that we need. As he looks on, as the chief priest looks on, he sees this man, this Galilean preacher, this troublemaker who's been challenging them. He claims to be God. It's blasphemy. He's got to die. This is a man who claims... He's, we see very clearly this claim. He's claiming to be, he, to be the one who's going to be seated at the right hand of God. He's claiming to have that status, to sit at the right hand of the Father, to be the son of the blessed one, to be the son of God. It's clearly blasphemy. It's absolutely abhorrent to these leaders of the Jews. They're looking to uphold the law, looking to uphold... The, God, who's above everything. It's cut and dried. It's clear. Unless it's true. Unless it's true. Unless Jesus is who he says he is. You see, C.S. Lewis famously made the point Responding to those who said that they could accept Jesus as a good man or as a great moral teacher. He said this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet feet, and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. And he says this, he has not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. And then C.S. Lewis gives his conclusion, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. See, the point here, and why I quote that, is that in one sense, the chief priests are right. Jesus is making that claim. They haven't got it wrong. They haven't been mistaken somehow. Well, he didn't really claim to be God's. As some would have it said, they would say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God's. No, what Jesus says is enough. What Jesus says is enough to make the claim he is claiming to be God's. But the problem is then they get it completely wrong. Then they get it completely wrong. Blasphemer. It's blasphemy. No, he is the son of God's. He is the son of God. You see, the truth is, he's not a blasphemer, not because he didn't make the claim, but because it's true. He is the son of God, the Messiah, the saviour. And the, the wonderful truth from that is that, therefore, we can believe him. We can believe in him. We can trust him with everything and put our faith in him because he is exactly who he said he was. So we see Jesus, the one who fights for us, not with swords and clubs and an army, but on the cross, drinking the cup. And we see Jesus, who is who he says he is, who is the Son of God. But thirdly, in this passage, looking at it, we could see, we could come to a conclusion that Jesus is some kind of helpless victim. In R.T. France's commentary on Mark, He says this, that up to now Jesus has taken the initiative, but now Jesus is the passive victim. And I understand what he's saying, and I agree up to a point. And I think, no, I agree with his point that he's making. But we could easily take that the wrong way. Because through the passage we do see Jesus betrayed by Judas. It's Judas doing it. We see him arrested by the mob. We see him abandoned by the disciples. We see all this false testimony thrown at him. We see him condemned by the Sanhedrin and the chief priests. We see him mocked by those around, beaten and spit at and mocked, prophesy. And we see, as Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You see, Jesus going like that lamb to the slaughter. But what we see is apparently the leaders taking charge. The leaders seem to be in control. And Jesus, helpless, At this point and through the next passages, we see Jesus. He's taken before the leaders. He's dragged before the high priest, the Sanhedrin. He's dragged before Pilate. Eventually, he's crucified. 
So therefore, is Jesus here just a helpless victim of circumstance, carried along by the external events that are around him? In other words, is it all going wrong? Let's go back where we started. Verse 41, this is what Jesus says, the hour has come. You see, whatever they all thought or believed, what we can see here of the leaders coming and they've, they've done it at last, they've arrested him and taken him away. We see Jesus, the Son of God, the Saviour, not so much a helpless victim, but a man on a mission. A man on a mission. His saving mission. And yes, he does go like a lamb to the slaughter. In that sense, he is a passive victim. He's letting it happen. But what's driving him? He's submitted to the will of the Father. He's submitted to the will of the Father. Last time we saw him staring into the cup, crying out, Is there any other way? And if there is, then take it from me. But what does he conclude? Yet not my will, but yours be done, Father. And as there is no other way, here we see Jesus resolved to go to the cross. He's seen clearly what is before him. But he's resolved. This is my mission. This is why I came. And so I am going to the cross. We've seen him asking the question in the garden, if there's another way, then take this cup from me. And then as we look at this section in John chapter 18, as he's arrested, he tells Peter, no, put your sword away, Peter. What does he say? Shall I not drink this cup that's set before me? He's resolved to it. He's, resolved. he's going. Jesus is, this is Jesus' mission. And later on, as the Sanhedrin mock, prophesy. Actually, we see the one who over and over again, in a few places at least in Mark's gospel and in in the other gospels too, has prophesied this very thing. This is the way it must happen. This is what was was always going to happen. Let's turn particularly to Mark chapter 10, verse 33. We could have turned to Mark 8, verse 31, Mark 9, verse 31. Let's look at Mark 10 and verse 33. Jesus says to his disciples, we are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. This is Jesus This is what he came to do. This is what he came to do. They may think they finally managed it. We've arrested him. We've got him. We can deal with this troublemaker now. But we see Jesus following the will of the Father. All the way to the point of drinking the cup of the wrath of God, becoming sin for us and dying on the cross. And as Dan mentioned the last time we were here, there is no comparison. There is no other picture. 
of what Jesus went through, what Jesus did for us. And yet, as we look at it, we see a great picture for us of resolving to do the will of the Father, of hearing him and saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what God has said. I am going to do what my Father has for me. As I say, there's no picture from Scripture or elsewhere that could compare with what Jesus had gone through. And yet we see again and again through Scripture of people resolving to do the will of God. Or resolving to trust in the God who is carrying out his plans and purposes. We see Abraham, he's told to go. And he goes to a land. He doesn't even know where he's going. Yet he hears God and he says, I'm coming with you. We see Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. As King Nebuchadnezzar says, no, you've got to bow down to this. He said, no, we're following God. Whatever happens to us, we are following him. They knew what the punishment was. We're going to throw you in the fiery furnace. No, we are following God. And, then partic- and particularly in that, we see in Daniel chapter 3, what do they say? In Daniel chapter 3 and verse 16, we see their response to King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. We're going to follow God. We're going to go after him. In very different circumstances, we see David. He sinned. He slept with Bathsheba. He's had Uriah killed. He's been confronted by Nathan the prophet. And then the, the outworking of that and the, almost the, 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 the consequences, actually your son is going to die. We can read the story in 2 Samuel 12, but we see David crying out, is there, is there another way? In effect, can you spare my son? But I think it's amazing that what we actually see, the situation's completely different. This is all, David knows, I've messed up. And yet as news comes through, no, no David, your son has died. What does he do? He gets up and he praises God. I'm going to follow you, God. I'm going to go after you. This isn't what I wanted to happen. This isn't what I wanted to to come about. And yet I will follow you. We see examples throughout Scripture. And yet ultimately we see Jesus going to the cross. This is the will of the Father. This is what I am going to do. So is he a helpless victim? Yes, we see Jesus handed over to sinful men. We see him led like a lamb to the slaughter. And yet we don't see a helpless victim. We see a man on a mission. A man on a mission to save save helpless sinners. As Romans chapter 5 reminds us, just at the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. A man on a mission. So how do we conclude? We see 
Jesus here in this passage, we could see him, they think he's a troublemaker, a freedom fighter, someone who's going to come and raise up an army. He's the one who fights for us, who fought for us by going to the cross. They labelled him a blasphemer because he claimed to be God. But the truth is, he is God. He is the Son of God. And we see the one who trusted in his Father's will and followed the sovereign will of the Father, not a helpless victim, but a man on a mission to save many. And so what do we do? We see our Saviour and we fix our eyes on him. As Hebrews 12 reminds us to do, exhorts us to do. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. As we stare and fix our eyes at our saviour, let's keep running this race. Let's resolve, as he did, to follow the will of the Father, to trust him, to keep going, knowing that we have a saviour who is all that he says he is. Let's pray together.